All right, good evening and welcome to everyone. We're continuing our Bible study series, Out of Bondage into Abundance. We are working our way slowly but surely through this very long series. Obviously, uh, it's a very long study because it covers quite a bit of biblical history. And as we've mentioned from the start of this entire study, uh, our interest is beyond just learning the history of Israel. That's important, and this is all historical fact. It's recorded for us in the Bible, and many of these things are confirmed with archaeological evidence. But what we are trying to do is, with the help of the Holy Spirit, to get a picture from this entire story of Israel coming out of Egypt and journeying into the Promised Land, a picture of our Christian journey. And the parallels are numerous and quite amazing, that they were in bondage to Pharaoh in Egypt, we were in bondage to sin. They came out of bondage through the blood of the Passover lamb, we also can escape the bondage of sin only through the blood of Jesus Christ, the true Passover lamb. And so each step in the literal journey corresponds to an aspect of our Christian life. And of course, we want everybody listening to this study to understand there is freedom in Jesus Christ. You can come out of bondage. I don't care what the bondage may be, but Jesus is more powerful than any bondage. And he can bring us out through his precious shed blood, shed for us on Calvary. And when we place our faith and trust in Christ, he begins this great process of taking us out of bondage, bringing us into abundance. He spoke in John 10.10 10 about an abundant life, an overflowing life, both in this life and, more importantly, in the life to come for all of eternity. Now, for those that may be new or just joining us, uh, let me say what I always do. Both the notes and the recordings of all of these studies are available at our website, which is new-life-ministries.org, and you can download the notes, and I highly recommend all of us doing that so that you can follow along and even write your own notes in the margins as we go along. And if you happen to have missed any of the previous stu studies, you can go back and listen to those uh, and hopefully get up to date with us. We've been doing this quite a number of weeks now, and we still have a ways to go. If you are following in the notes, we have made it up to page 95 in the notes, and this is again in part 6, and in part six, we are looking at the seven enemy nations that occupied Canaan, the promised land, and how God's command of the Israelites was to go in, drive them out, dispossess them, 
and take control of the land where these enemy nations had been dwelling. And we are hopefully finishing the first of those seven nations tonight. And with God's help, we're trying to see what each one of those nations might represent to us now as Christians. When we get saved, when we take water baptism, and when we are filled with God's Holy Spirit, we are suddenly, whether we like it or not, plunged into the midst of a war, spiritual warfare. And we find ourselves wrestling, as Paul says in Ephesians 6, not with flesh and blood, but with powers, principalities, all kinds of evil and dark forces that would like to hinder and stop our progress in Christ. And we're not going to get very far in this spiritual life without understanding the nature of it. It is a war. It is an all-out war. And again, let me, emphasize, <clears throat> let me emphasize, our warfare is not with flesh and blood. People are not our problem. Your boss, your husband, your wife, your son, your daughter, your next-door neighbor, that's not your real problem. God has to open our eyes to see unseen spiritual forces that are behind people and learn how to put on the whole armor of God and wrestle not with the people but with the forces that are behind them. Satanic, demonic, dark forces that are becoming easier and easier to recognize in the world today. And it's helpful to keep reminding ourselves, lest we start fighting with people, quarreling with people, trying to argue with people, it's good to keep reminding ourselves, that's not our problem. Our problem is not people. Our problem is demons, sin, darkness, evil, and wicked forces. And I think we can see as we look at these seven enemy nations that were residing in the land that flows with milk and honey, we can begin to identify certain spirits, certain evil forces that correspond to them in our day as we are trying to walk with Christ. And the first of these seven we have deliberately put first, and it's the Canaanites. The Canaanites were the descendants of Canaan, the grandson of Noah. And we saw in great detail that after the flood, when Noah and his sons got down from the ark, Noah planted a vineyard, and he grew grapes, and he produced wine, and the Bible says all of this very plainly in Genesis, that one day Noah got drunk. And it resulted in an incident where one of his sons was guilty of exposing his father's nakedness. The other two sons tried to cover their father's nakedness, but the one who exposed his nakedness, he had already been blessed by Noah and by God, but his grandson, Noah's grandson, Canaan, 
came under a curse. Cursed be Canaan. And so the descendants of Canaan became, obviously, the Canaanites. But what is more important is Canaan actually gave rise to five of the other enemy nations. So actually six of the seven nations that needed to be conquered in the Promised Land were either the direct or indirect result of that incident that took place in the life of Noah and the curse that resulted. And we mentioned last time a very interesting New Testament parallel to that. Canaan, in one sense, was the root of all of these other evil nations. And Canaan, we have seen, represents worldliness, the love of the world, and more specifically, the love or greed for money. Well, in First Timothy, sorry, chapter 6, we saw that the love of money is the root of all other evil. Very interesting. The love of money, this Canaanite spirit, is the root of all other evil. And if you look at evil, you can always trace it back somewhere along the line to money. Stealing, murder, extortion, blackmail, all these things center around man's greed for money. Nothing wrong with money. Money's not evil. It's the love of money that is the problem. We saw that the word Canaan, or the Canaanites, it speaks of merchants. They were involved in trade and business. And again, there's nothing evil about business, nothing evil about buying and selling, nothing evil about trade. But when that becomes the only focus in a person's life, it can be very dangerous and very devastating. Because we saw at the beginning of this section on the Canaanites, the devil is in charge of this world. God created the universe, including this world. But the world system was surrendered over to Satan through Adam and Eve's fall in the Garden of Eden. And ever since then, he has been referred to with various titles, uh, such as the God of this world, the Prince of the Power of the Air, Jesus referred to Satan as the prince of this world. He's the ruler of the kingdom of the air. John says in his epistle, the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Not hard to understand that. And when we refer to the world, we're not just talking about the continents and the physical part of this world. It's the whole system of the world, the philosophy, the teaching, the educational system, the books, the media, the internet, the whole nine yards. Because remember, Satan is the ruler of the kingdom of the air. I think it's interesting that even now we refer to the airwaves 
radio and TV and all of our telephones. Everything is coming through the air, and he's in charge of the air. He's in control, predominantly, of the media, whether we're talking about the print media, books, newspapers, internet, or movies, TV, all of these different media are under the control of Satan, with a few rare exceptions. And so we need to understand God's warning about our relationship to the world. Friendship with the world, we saw, is enmity with God. It's actually spiritual adultery. James uh, rebukes some of the Christians in his day, and he calls them adulterers. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? John said, do not love the world or anything in the world, for anybody who loves the world does not love God. The love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. Well, he says that in chapter 2 of 1 John. Then later in chapter 5 is where he comes back and revisits this whole subject of the world and why we must not love the world. In 1 John 5.19, he states, the whole world is under the control of the evil one. So, we must be very careful what our relationship is with this whole world system. It's very easy to compromise, to join forces with this world. But repeatedly, God tells us in his word, the world is our enemy. Just like the Canaanites were the enemies of Israel, so the world is not our friend. The world is our enemy, and it will lead us astray from Christ if we're not careful. Now, we began last time looking at seven ways to overcome the world, overcome worldliness. I'll recap the first three that we looked at last time very briefly, and then we're going to move right along here. Number one, we saw that we overcome the world through faith. First John 5 tells us, This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. And of course, first and most importantly, if you read the whole context there, he says, Everyone who is born of God overcomes the world. Who is he that overcomes the world? The one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So, placing our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, recognizing He is God's only Son, recognizing why God sent His Son to save us from sin, to give us eternal life, that faith is our victory over the world. Secondly, we saw the grace of God is given to us not just to save us from sin, but to enable us to overcome the world. 
In Titus 2.11 it says, The grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Praise God, we're saved by grace. But he goes on to say, Grace teaches us. We need to talk a lot more about that in our churches. Grace is not just an excuse for us to be losers, to always be sinning, and falling back into worldliness and temptation. Grace has been given to us to be our teacher. He says, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and no to worldly passions. So as the world is tempting us and calling us and trying to lure us away from Christ and deceive us into this trap of loving money and loving the material world, grace is right there teaching us to say no, no to ungodliness, no to worldly passions, and it goes on to say that same grace teaches us to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thirdly, and this is where we ended last time, and this is very important, this is probably the heart of the whole matter, don't conform to the world, don't make any compromise with the world. Romans 12, I think, sums the whole thing up very clearly in verse 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. God's call to the Christian is, you're in the world, but not of it. Therefore, as we read in 2 Corinthians 6, come out from them and be separate. Separate yourselves from the world. It doesn't mean we go live in a monastery up on the top of a mountain. We're in the world. We're we're rubbing elbows with people in the world every day. Some of them may be uh, adulterers. Some of them may be alcoholics. Some of them may be homosexuals. We're not going to run and escape to a cave to get away from them. We're in the world. We're salt and light in the world. But never, never, never does God say we're to conform to them. And there's a lot of pressure now on the churches, and many of them have already caved. They're pressured to become like the world and to adopt all of the philosophies of the world. Case in point, gay marriage. Now it's been legalized by all 50 states in America. Well, it's the law of the land now, so I guess that means Christians should all embrace that as acceptable behavior, and we should now praise and laud anyone who's living that lifestyle. Absolutely not. That is not what the Bible teaches. They can pass all the laws they want, legalizing marijuana. They can legalize murder if they want. 
It doesn't mean it's acceptable to a child of God. We follow the law of God, ultimately. And if in any way the law of the land violates God's law, we must obey God and not man. So, we are not to compromise with the world. We're not to compromise with the mindset of the world. That's why Romans 12.2 said, Don't conform, transform. What needs to be transformed is our mind. Don't conform to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We get our minds renewed in the Word of God. We get our minds renewed as we are filled with God's Holy Spirit, and He leads us and guides us into all truth. And He begins to show us the lies, the deceptions, and the errors that are a part of this world's pattern and philosophy. You know, I feel very sorry, especially for young people who go off to college now, and they're not properly rooted and grounded in the Word of God because they are bombarded with lies and deceptions on most of the college campuses. And even some of the so-called Christian colleges now are compromising and, and conforming more and more to the pattern of this world. But secular colleges and universities, they're quite well known now for converting young people converting them from any faith that they might have had in Christ to becoming total, absolute atheists by the time they're getting their diplomas. Don't conform to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We're in the world. Never, ever did God say we're to be of it. We're different. We're separate. Come out from among them. What fellowship does light have with darkness? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? Well, we can mingle with unbelievers. Jesus did. He ate with them. He walked around with them. But his intent was always to be light to them, to try to call them out of darkness in the marvelous light. Now, very often, what's happening Christians are fellowshipping with unbelievers, and the unbelievers are converting the Christians back into sin, darkness, and the ways of the world. We need to be very, very careful. All right, moving ahead tonight, we're on page 95 in the outline notes. We've come to the fourth of seven keys to our overcoming the world. This one's important also. And we need to look in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and we'll look from verse 9 to 14. And the key here is to learn to listen to the Spirit of God, not the Spirit of the world. There are two spirits. And as we read this portion of Scripture, you'll see it very clearly. There's a Spirit of the world. It's different from the Spirit of God. These are two conflicting voices that you and I will be hearing, and they will compete for our attention. They will compete for our affection and our loyalty. We must make a decision to be filled with the Spirit 
and listen to the Spirit of God, not the Spirit of the world. Okay, 1 Corinthians 2, from verse 9 down to verse 14. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. Speaking about the Holy Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Pay close attention to verse 12. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God so that we may understand what God has freely given us. We have not received the spirit of the world. Note Paul's words. There's a spirit behind this world, behind the whole world system, the humanistic, evolutionary, educational system that most young people are enslaved to the so-called public school system. There's a spirit behind it. It's an antichrist spirit. It's a, a it's a spirit that wants to take people away from faith in Christ. We've not received that spirit. We've re- received the spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit, who is from God. He's called the Spirit of Truth. And he's given to us so that we may understand what God has freely given us. Verse 13. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. Very interesting. The Spirit of God, Jesus said, has been given to lead us and guide us into all truth. The anointing of the Holy Spirit is to be our teacher. As we train our ears to listen to the Holy Spirit, He will guide us into all truth. He will, he will alert us and warn us about any false spirits, the spirit of the world, the spirit of Antichrist, any spirit that is contrary to God, the Holy Spirit will alert us to that spirit and steer us away from that. Verse 14, The person without the Holy Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. So here's another key to our overcoming the world, 
be filled with the Spirit, walk in the Spirit, and listen to the Spirit of God. Dedicate your life to the study of God's Word and the discipline of learning to listen to the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is a teacher. He doesn't want to be silent in your life. He has many things He wants to teach you. And really, if you study the four Gospels and look at all of the time Jesus invested into teaching and training His disciples, to be very honest with you, at the end of three and a half years, when He went to the cross and went back to be with His Father, it looked like His teaching ministry was a complete flop. These guys hadn't learned anything, at least it didn't seem like they had, until the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came upon them and came to dwell in them. Suddenly, on that very day, you find Peter quoting passage after passage of Scripture, which I'm convinced he didn't have a clue what any of those passages meant before the day of Pentecost. Now, all of a sudden, he understands things. That's why the Holy Spirit came, to give us understanding, to reveal spiritual things to us. And let me read this once again before we move on. We have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. We don't want the Spirit of the world. We want the Spirit of God. Now, related to that, but I want to separate this out because it's something different and distinct also. Point number five here. The way to overcome this world is to have a hope beyond this world. Set your hope and affection on heavenly things. You know, the Bible says without a vision, people perish. And if in this life only we have hope in Christ... Paul says we're still, of all men, most miserable. So, we can get saved, and we can come to Christ, and if all we're hoping for is a better job, a more expensive car, and a bigger house, we've missed it. We have totally missed the real purpose for which Christ came. We need a vision, and this is where the Holy Spirit comes into play, we need a vision beyond this earthly realm. And that's why point number five, set your hope and affection on heavenly things. Now we could look at many, many scriptures. I'm just going to turn our attention to two here. Colossians chapter 3 from verse 1 to 4. Paul writes to the Colossian Christians, and he says this, Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Now, he taught extensively in other places in his letters. We have been crucified with Christ, we've been buried with Christ, and we've also been raised with Christ. We don't just try to imitate Christ, we identify with him. And there's actually an exchange where 
We are crucified with him, and he now comes to live in me. I exchange my life for the life of Christ. So, let's start over again here. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts, some Bibles say, set your affection on things above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is a deliberate act on your part, on my part. It's something we have to will to do. He's telling them, this is something you have to make up your mind. Set your hearts on things above. Set your minds on things above. And if you don't do it with a, a certain kind of a deliberateness, you'll automatically trend toward setting your heart on things below. Setting your mind on earthly things. Why? Because we're surrounded by the world and its system. We're bombarded 24-7 with ads, with conversations, with philosophies, all of which are a part of the world system. So we need to be very deliberate to set our hearts on things above, set our minds and our affections on things above. Again, it, it involves a, a certain discipline that I think starts at the very beginning of every day. As you get up and pray and seek the Lord and worship Him, sing to Him, give Him thanks, study His Word, spend time in prayer. One important part of that time each and every morning is to remind yourself, this world is passing away, and everything in it. I don't want to run after the vanities of this world. Let me set my hope on something that is eternal. Let me set my mind, set my heart on things above. You know, the Bible says that God is the God of hope. And we are to be filled with hope as Christians. And when I'm talking about hope, I'm talking about hope beyond the grave, hope beyond this world. And, you know, this is a bit of a challenge because we are here in the world. We see it, we taste it, we touch it. It's all around us, and we often feel like this is the most real thing in my life because I can see it, I can touch it, I can hear it, I can taste it. But the Holy Spirit, and that's why this is connected to the previous point, the Holy Spirit begins to make heavenly things more real to us to the point that, like that old song says, when we turn our eyes upon Jesus and we look full in his face, 
Then the things of this earth grow strangely dim. The, the stuff of this world starts to lose its luster. It starts to lose all of its attractiveness to us. And quite frankly, um, it no longer means much to us because we have a far greater hope set on things above. Look also in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And again, there are many, many more verses. I just picked out two here to keep it short and simple. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 17 and 18. Paul writes, Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So, we fix our eyes. Notice again, it's something we do very deliberately. We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. That sounds crazy. The most natural thing for us is to fix our eyes on what we can see. But he says, no, that's all wrong. We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So here's the test that Paul gives us here. If you can see it, then you can automatically say it's temporary. It's going to pass away. So my TV, my house, my car, these are all things that I can see. And they serve a certain purpose in my life. My car gets me from point A to point B. My house protects me from the rain and the snow. I'm thankful for that. But it's going to pass away. Houses pass away. Cars rust and end up in junkyards. You know, your, your brand new iPhone that you stood in line for hours and hours and hours last year, it's practically worthless now. Because another new one will be coming out soon. And it'll phase that old one out. Everything passes away. It's all temporary. So we need to keep reminding ourselves, if I can see it, if I can taste it, if I can touch it, then it's temporary. The things I should be focusing on are unseen. Because if it's unseen, it's not temporary. If it's unseen, Paul says, it's eternal. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, remember we saw in 1 Corinthians 2, God has given us His Spirit to reveal to us those things that he has prepared for those who love him. Eye hasn't seen them. Ear hasn't heard them. Human mind has never even imagined these things. Nevertheless, they're very real. Very real things of substance that God has prepared for those who love him. Only problem is, they're invisible. We can't see them with our physical or naked eyes now, but we can see them through the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit begins to 
peel back the scales on our spiritual eyes, pull back the curtains, and starts to unveil things as he did with the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. That's literally what the word revelation means, an unveiling. The Spirit of God began to pull back the curtains and show John amazing sights. He said, come, I'm going to show you the Lamb's wife. He showed him the New Jerusalem. He saw the glorious city of God. He got a clear vision of a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem, and the eternal kingdom of God. You can't see those things with your natural eyes. The Holy Spirit has to enlighten us. But as we get glimpses of the heavenly glory, the heavenly kingdom, as we begin to grow in our hope of eternal things based on the Word of God and revelation that the Holy Spirit gives us, those things become very real to us. And actually, they begin to become more important to us than any ambitions or aspirations that we might have once had for this world. The world begins to fade away. And let me call your attention to a scripture we looked at at the very beginning of this whole section on the world in 1 John 2, verses 15 to 17. John said there, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. But here's the most important part, really, <coughs> of this whole section. The world and its desires pass away. Pass away. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. You know, if you look at a number of other scriptures, you begin to realize everything in this world is going to burn one day. It's all melting in the fervent heat of God's holy fire. Why are we centering and building our lives around stuff that is going to go up in smoke? It's going to vanish. And you either... Set your mind and your hope on earthly things and end up wasting your life in vanity, or you set your hope, you set your affection on heavenly things, and you seek God, run after God, and in the end, you are rewarded with heavenly rewards that cannot be corrupted, cannot fail, and they will not rust or fade away. So, this fifth point here has to do with you and me making up our minds, being very deliberate. That's why Paul uses this expression, fix our eyes. Fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. You know, even when you try very hard to focus on one object, there are things to the right and left of you that try to distract you. They try to pull your eyes 
away from that one thing that you're focusing on. But we need to develop this discipline of focusing on the things of God, fixing our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. And again, this is difficult. I'm not going to say it's easy, it's difficult. Because we're bombarded all day long by the world. All you have to do is click on the television for half an hour. Notice the commercials, the ads that flash before you. Basically, all of them are calling you and saying, you need this, you need a new car, you need a bigger house, you need a brand new $1,000 suit or whatever. And if you're not careful, you start listening to that spirit and you say, yeah, I need more money, I want more money, I want to look like that guy on, on the TV set. And we get deceived by the spirit of the world. Set your hope on heavenly things. And even as you're seeing all of that stuff, you can be kind of laughing inside and rejoicing, saying, all that's going to pass away. There's a better place where I'm going. All right, let's move on here. Number six. And this one, I'm only giving a few verses of Scripture. We could actually have many, many more, but... It's an important one. If you want to defeat the spirit of worldliness, greed, the love of money, learn how to give. Give financially. There's a powerful weapon in doing that. You will defeat greed for money, love of money, because, I mean... Just think about it. It's not rocket science. If you have money in your pocket and you're giving it away, then that just breaks that whole spirit of wanting to grab more money because you're giving it away. And as Paul teaches in 2 Corinthians, learn how to be a cheerful giver, literally hilarious giver. It becomes joyful. It becomes fun when you learn how to give away what God has given you, and you don't do it just for this reason, but lo and behold, as you cultivate a spirit of giving in your life, it frees you from the love of money and greed, and God keeps pouring more back into your life, so you have more to give again. So giving financially is a key to defeating the spirit of greed and covetousness. Um, we were discussing this the other day, and I haven't finalized the dates yet, but at some time in the near future, I want to do another seminar on finances. How a Christian handles his or her money and finances is very important. Some Christians think, oh, we shouldn't even talk about money in the church. We should have separation of church and state. Don't talk about money in church. Well, Jesus talked about money all the time. The Bible talks about money all the time. Why? Because our relationship to money is extremely important. 
The negative side of that we've already seen. The love of money is the root of all evil. So just imagine what happens when you get free from that and you begin to move in the purpose and plan of God and become a channel through which God can give money to other ministries and other people. It's a great blessing. All right, let's look at a couple of scriptures. Luke chapter 12, we'll look at verse 15, and then we'll drop down to verses 33 and 34. In context, someone came to Jesus and said, Jesus, you know, you need to talk to my brother. He doesn't want to split up the inheritance with me. This is a very common problem in families nowadays where mom or pop dies and the siblings all end up fighting at each other's throats, arguing and fussing over the money. Jesus said, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. That's a very important word for every one of us. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. That's the Spirit of God speaking through Jesus Christ. Notice, the Spirit of the world tells us just the opposite. Grab all you can, cheat, lie, defraud, scam, even kill if necessary to get all you can get. And it amazes me when I read about some of the schemes that fallen man thinks up now to cheat, defraud, and scam other people out of money, particularly how to scam and cheat the government out of money. People lie, they pretend, they do all kinds of things to steal money. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. You know, um, I got a notice about a week ago from my credit card company. Uh, they saw some suspicious activity, and so they called me, and they said, Hello, Mr. Pratt. Uh, we just wanted to check on a purchase that you just made today. Are you in Nebraska? I said, No. Haven't been anywhere near Nebraska. Oh, then you didn't make a purchase for $1,800 at Home Depot in Nebraska. No, I did not. Oh, well, someone else has used your credit card number to make a purchase in Home Depot in Nebraska. It's fraud. These are thieves and liars. And look what the devil has done to them to stoop that low that they're, they're willing to use someone else's name and credit card to buy something with money that isn't their own. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. The world says the more possessions you have, the better life you have. Right? That's the American dream. The bigger house, the more cars you have, 
the more abundance of possessions you own, you have a better life. That's what the spirit of the world teaches. That is not what the spirit of God teaches. Spirit of God says life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Most of us, myself included, we have too many possessions already. We should probably get rid of some of the ones we have. We don't need more possessions. We need more focus on God and his kingdom. Now drop down to verses 33 and 34. Here's Jesus' advice. Here's his recommendation on how to defeat this spirit of greed. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He's talking about having a wallet or a purse in heaven. A purse that does not wear out. A purse that's full of treasure that will never fail. The money, the stuff of this world, it will fail. And you've probably been hearing in the news the last week or two, there have been some pretty frightening gyrations in not only the U.S. stock market, but in the global markets throughout the world. And I'm no economist, and I'm not a financial expert, but I know a little bit about money. And I'm seeing something in what's happening now that I've never seen before, where all of the economies, and even everything that makes up those economies, is falling. Usually in the past, if the stock market started to fall, investors would move their money to gold or silver or bonds or some other kind of investment. What we're seeing now is China and many other nations' economies are collapsing. Our U.S. stock market has lost, I don't know, I'm not keeping up with it, that much day-to-day, but I think it's lost about 25% of its value in the last couple of weeks. But so has gold and silver and bonds and everything else. So it's like a depression all the way across the board. And a lot of people are asking, where should I invest my money now? Should I put it in the stock market? Should I put it in silver and gold? Should I put it in bonds? Should I put it in real estate? Well, again, I'm no financial advisor, but I think the best advice is what Jesus said. Invest in heaven. Invest in the kingdom of God. That gives you a good return, and you're guaranteed that treasure will never fail, and no thief comes near and no moth will destroy. 
Look at two other passages in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 11, verses 24 and 25. And if you're very good at math, you'll notice that there's something very strange about God's math here. It doesn't add up the way it normally does in earthly math. Proverbs 11:24 says, One person gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. So, let me try to make this ultra simple. We have two men. Each one of them has $100 in his pocket. So they start off equal. Each one has $100. The one with $100 gives away all 100 of his dollars. Now, if you learned your math fairly well in elementary school, you know how much he has left in his pocket. How much? Zero. The man with $100, he's stingy. He doesn't give a dime of it away. So he started off with 100 He didn't give any of it away, so he should end up with how much in his pocket? 100 But God says that's not the way it is going to work. The one who had 100 and gave it all away, he now has 1000 in his pocket. And the one who started off with 100 greedily holding on to it, he ends up with nothing. It's a, it's a spiritual principle that goes beyond the normal dollars and cents math that we're all used to doing. You give, you gain. You greedily hold on to, you lose. That's one of the laws of the kingdom. And here's the punchline. A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. The blessing of Abraham is promised to every one of us. God blesses us with the very blessing of Abraham. He wants to prosper us. He wants to give us materially he wants us to succeed in life. He wants us to do well. However, it's so that we can be a blessing to others. If you leave that last part off, the blessing becomes a curse. Abraham was blessed to be a blessing to all of the peoples on the earth. God wants to bless you and me, not so that we can hoard it, and hold on to it, and gobble it all up for ourselves, he blesses us so that we can find creative ways to be a blessing to others. A generous person will prosper. And again, if you haven't really experienced what Paul is talking about being a hilarious giver, I would recommend you try it. And it actually becomes more and more hilarious because the more you give away, the more God gives back to you. And at the end of the month, you sit down and you try to do the, the math, and it doesn't add up. I gave away this many dollars, 
and I have more dollars now than I started the month off with. I don't know how this works. It's a spiritual principle. Okay, one more verse on this section. Proverbs 28, 22 to 27. The stingy are eager to get rich. Remember, the love of money is the root of all evil. The stingy are eager to get rich and are unaware that poverty awaits them. Wait a minute. They wanted to get rich. And what are they going to have in the end? Poverty. Verse 25. The greedy stir up conflict, but those who trust in the Lord will prosper. And verse 27. Those who give to the poor will lack nothing, but those who close their eyes to them receive many curses. So, a very important and powerful way to overcome greed, love of the world, love of money, is learn the joy of giving it away. Learn how to be a generous person. One person gives freely, yet gains even more. All right, let's finish this First Nation with one last point, and then I'm going to close for the evening. Point number seven, these are all related, but I'm trying to extract a different point here. Number seven, learn to be content. Oh, my. I could go on for hours on this one. I won't. But it's such an important thing for us to understand. Learn to be content. When you're content with what you have, you don't need anything more. And suddenly, all of that drive and ambition and motivation to get more and more and more is dead. And that's the wisdom of God in learning how to be content. Philippians 4, verses 11 to 13. Paul says, I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Whatever the circumstances I have learned. Underline that word learned. This is something we have to learn. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. And if you've walked with the Lord for any length of time, you can probably say amen to that. I can certainly say amen. I know what it is to be in need. I really do. And I know what it is to have plenty. Paul had both of those experiences, but here's what he learned ultimately from that whole spectrum of experience. I have learned the secret. I like that. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this 
through him who gives me strength. You know, this is a rare commodity even amongst Christians. You'll meet many, many Christians who are not content. They don't like their job. They don't like their marriage. They don't like their house. They don't like their car. They want more of this. They want more of that. And something is driving them, driving them, driving them all the time. They never have peace. They never have rest in their lives. Paul says, I've learned a secret. I can be happy. I can be at peace. I can be content in any situation. Why? Because my life doesn't depend on outward circumstances. My life depends now on my relationship with God and with His Son. My hope is not in this world. My hope is in the world to come. And finally, Hebrews 13, verse 5. Some great wisdom from the writer of Hebrews. Keep your lives free from the love of money. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. You know what I've learned? If there's something more that I need in my life, God knows that, and He will provide it. I don't need to lose my peace, lose my focus, and start running after what the pagans are running after when He tells me He already knows what I need. If He already knows what you and I need, Surely he's going to provide all of those things that are necessary for us to complete our mission here on planet Earth. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And sadly, we spoke about this several weeks ago. Even many well-meaning ministers of God and ministries, if they're not careful, they fall into this trap of wanting money. Oh, we need a $9 million uh, sanctuary and complex for our church. And they get involved in all kinds of schemes and money-making stuff. And in the end, they may have a $9 million building and no faith. And the Spirit of God has long since departed. Let's learn to be content where we are with what we have, knowing that our Heavenly Father is more mindful of our needs than we are. And He can provide the strength, and everything else that we need to be content in any and every situation. Let's pray. Father, as we bring this first enemy nation to a close, the Canaanites, the love of money, the love of the world, Lord, this is the root of all the other evil nations, and this is the root of all evil. 
And Lord, if the axe can be laid to the roots, then the whole tree will die. And we are praying earnestly that you would lay the axe to the roots of this in our lives. We don't want to fall into the trap and snare of greed and covetousness and running after the things of the world like the pagans do. God, give us a heavenly vision. Open the eyes of our hearts. Show us the glories of the kingdom of God, that we can fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, that we can fix our eyes not on that which is seen, but on that which is unseen. Lord, deliver us from any snare of the enemy that would try to distract us or derail us or, worse still, cause us to make shipwreck of our faith. God, we don't want to be in love with the world. We want to be in love with you. We want to set our affection on things above, not on the things of this earth. And we pray that daily your Holy Spirit would speak to us and call us, call our hearts, call our eyes, call our attention away from the things of this world and upward toward the kingdom, the throne, and the glory of God. Lord, I thank you for making us more than conquerors. You said this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Fill us with an overcoming faith. Make each and every one of us more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. We'll give you the praise, the honor, and the glory. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.